0: God, here we are all together in this space. Many of us with hearts that know all too well what it is like to face questions without answers, to feel abandoned and alone, to carry impossible broken hearts. And yet here we are again. And what I ask for very simply is that you yourself would give wisdom and light that this time would be a time of healing for each and every one of us, not only as we bring our hearts to you, but also our minds. Help our thinking reach right down into our hearts, and we ask in this season for hope. The hope that comes from the promise of your presence, and we ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Before I start, I want you to know that I believe that no one is here by accident. I believe that. I know that some of you are here because friends have dragged you along or parents have forced you to be here. Nonetheless, I still believe it's not an accident. Each one of us is right here because there is something that God has for us. The truth about life is that often confusion breaks in and it causes our hearts to ache impossibly. And though we seek for answers, they elude us and yet we still go looking. I'm talking about the reality of life, aren't I? Especially when we have some faith in God. Then the reality of evil and suffering becomes a real problem. Not all of us are in the same place in what we believe about God. All of us are in the same place in some measure in the darkness that's all around us in the world. But when we believe in God, then then evil and suffering raise real questions for us. Do you know that? In 2005, I was working with a youth group in Red Bank. It was amazingly vibrant. Many, many young people who had no background from church, they brought their friends together and each week I got to talk to them about God, about God's love and goodness and power. One Thursday evening, Kirsten was not there and I noticed because she was one of the happiest kids the brightest blue eyes and the biggest smile. She had just come and had an insatiable curiosity about God. After dinner, her friend told me, Kirsten is in the hospital right now and she wants you to come visit her. The hospital was just a few blocks from where we met as a youth group. So when the night ended, I walked down there. She'd been admitted to the psychiatric ward because she was there on account of having harmed herself. I made my way up to the room. There was her her angry-looking mother, her absent-looking stepfather, two other people I didn't know, and a social worker who approached me. She explained what had happened. Kirsten lived in a volatile home situation. Her mother was an alcoholic, and her stepfather was volatile and abusive. There had been some kind of fight earlier that day Kirsten took a bottle of pills and then a bottle of vodka and when that didn't work she smashed the bottle and she pressed the glass into her wrist and when her mom found her she said you can't do anything right you can't even kill yourself and I I thought in that moment this is evil That's the only word for that. The social worker told me, Kirsten has asked for you to come and she wants everybody to leave, including me, because she wants to ask you a question about God. Is that okay? Now, I think anybody with a heart and a belief in God in moments like this has questions about God. Don't you agree? Why would God make such a sensitive girl have to be born into such a terrible family situation? Is that a part of God's plan? Why would God give a mom like that a daughter when I have good friends who are kind and loving and they've been trying desperately to have children but they can't? Doesn't God give children as a gift? And what about when it's not an attempt but a success? And there's a family that has to appropriate the death of their child. And not because anything at all was wrong in their family. In fact, it was a loving and nurturing and a healthy environment. But nonetheless, the child suffered from mental illness, which has now been deadly. What about that? Does God have a hand in that? How about disease of other kinds or illness or poverty or famine or natural disasters? Or what about when some brutal maniac destroys the lives of thousands, sometimes in the name of God? What's going on? All of these questions rushed through my mind when, when in that moment, the social worker asked if I could answer a question about God. And you know, since 2005, well, haven't there been a lot more reasons to ask questions like these? The truth The truth about these questions is that if someone just says, well, you have to have faith and that makes it all better, they're not quite right because the truth about it is, if we didn't have faith, well, then we wouldn't have the problems we have. Do you know what I mean? If, there, if the universe is just the result of, of the random collocation of atoms spread out over enough time without any involvement from some supernatural being organizing it, well, then it's just inconvenient. It's sad. We don't like it, but it's not, strictly speaking, a problem that there should be evil and suffering. You see what I mean? But many of us who are here this morning, not all of us, but many of us, will not take that route. We do believe that God is good, and we do believe that God is loving. And we do believe that God has power, and so the problem of suffering and evil is a problem for us. And now at least one of you is thinking, does this guy know it's Christmas time? Is he the worst Scrooge ever? And, and listen, I bring this up at Christmas time for two reasons on purpose. The first is our historical moment as a people demands that we honestly engage with the question of suffering that is senseless and evil. If you've been watching the news in these last months, you know exactly what I mean. If we want to be obscurantist and escapist, then let's not talk about it. Let's just hear happy stories. But if we're going to engage with what's really happening in the world, which I believe the church always should do, then we have to talk about this. That's one reason. The second reason is specific to Christmas. And it is because the Christmas story never Ever runs away from the reality of darkness in the world, from the truth of suffering and evil, you know the Christmas story is run through like a crimson thread with the problem of evil and suffering that is impossible to bear. Think of it for a moment. The first story that we come across in the Christmas story is an unwanted pregnancy that almost leads to a divorce. And if you just... Put your imagination into that and set aside all the nostalgic details. That's a drama which is pretty dark, isn't it? Yeah? And then, then that family has to go to a place where they're gonna have the baby and they cannot find a room at the end. You know that part of the story, right? It's easy to romanticize the manger, but this is not the place where a child should be born. And the reason they can't afford a room is because they're poor, You know, if there's no room at the inn and you come with enough money, you get a room at the inn. But they don't because they don't have enough money. Why does God let some people not have enough money? You you zoom out a little bit from Mary and Joseph and then you meet another couple who despite wanting to have a child all their life long has to struggle with the maddening pain of infertility. Someone in here surely knows what that's like. That's dark. And then you go on from those details and you zoom back even further and you see that the entire story is told in a time when there is an oppressive government in place which uses its power to rob from the weakest in order to enrich the few. It is systematic oppression and doesn't God put leaders into positions of power? What's going on here? And and one step back, this is the worst of it all for me. We have right in the Christmas story a genocide, a crazy madman who is just pure and outright evil, Herod, who decides in order to try to get rid of Jesus to kill all the male children under the age of two. And we read about the weeping. But if we would imagine it for a minute, isn't that impossibly dark? Would you let your imagination go there for a moment? If you've lost a child, you know something of what that's like. But imagine an entire community dealing with that. This is the Christmas story, this darkness. But listen now. The story of Christmas is that into this darkness there has come a light. Into this darkness. A light which shines upon people who have for a long time suffered in the shadow of death. These are the poetic images that the prophets used to talk about what would one day happen. And that is how the Christmas story is unfolded as a story which is honest about the darkness and which does not say the darkness is gone but which rather says into this darkness there has come a light. Now I'm not just talking about the Christmas story. Some of you have walked into here carrying a world of darkness in your hearts because of the regrets that you've carried, because of your own choices, because of what other people have done to you, because of illness, because of loss, because of mental illness, because of impossible problems, you carry that darkness right into this place right here. And can I say right up front that Christians have given really, really bad answers to the problem of suffering and evil in history? Not all of them, but some have. If you weren't carrying such grief, you might shout, amen, even in this dark place. But whatever it is, listen, whatever the darkness is that you yourself carry, let's make this time together both a theoretical, uh, an intellectual exercise in asking a question about suffering and evil and the goodness of God, and at the same time, can we also make it personal So you let it come into your heart. Whether you are so young that the worst thing that's happened to you might make you think, well, I guess my life has been easy. Still, the darkest thing for you is the darkest thing. Or if you've lived to see so many dark days, it would stun and astound any one of us here. Whatever it is, you let that darkness come. And here now, I'm gonna tell you right up front the promise for today and for the rest of this month because this is our subject for four weeks. The promise is that the light has come And it is stronger than the darkness, no matter how strong the darkness. We're gonna look together at the Christmas story to see that it is a story for this problem. And we're not gonna look at Matthew or at Luke. And if you know the Bible well, you know that Matthew and Luke are the writers who tell the story of Christmas with all of the details that show up in our Christmas carols and in the things we buy at the store and we decorate our house with. The manger, the the shepherds and the angels, the baby born there and the star, the wise guys, that's what I called them when I was a kid. (laughs) They're all in in the, the version of the story told by Matthew and Luke. But what John does is something different. John zooms out from those details to give us the broadest and the grandest perspective possible on the Christmas story. And maybe you've never ever thought of what was written here in John as a Christmas story, if you've read it. If you've never heard it, I am so excited that I get to introduce you to this. And here's why, listen, because if you're here and have not yet ever found an adequate addressed to the problem of evil and everything you've heard from Christians has left you sadly disappointed. I wouldn't blame you at all, but here I get to open for you words which, listen, if they are true, challenge mostly the ways that Christians talk about suffering and give us a good promise. Here's how John starts his story. This is chapter one. I'm gonna read verses one through four. In the beginning... Was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The opening words of John's Gospel, in the beginning are chosen on purpose by John to remind his readers of the opening words of another story. Many of them would have recognized in these words, which in Greek are just two words, N-R-K, the exact same phrase which with the Bible itself begins. Genesis starts with the same exact words. Genesis is the story that the Bible tells of how God himself was there at the beginning before there was anything else and what John wants us to know is the story he's going to tell us is that far back. The story of the very beginning before there was anything else. What was there? John explains that there at the beginning was the word was with God and the word was God. Now use your mind for a moment and you will see what sounds like a sentence that identifies two subjects which are different and at the same time they are one, as if there is a word with God and a word which is God. Here, John is talking about Jesus in a new way that Jesus had not been described before. In a sense, John is pointing to the truth that Jesus was in some way with God before all of creation and Jesus was in some way God before all of creation. With God was God. Is that confusing? If you add the Holy Spirit to it, it gets 33% more confusing. (laughs) And that's a subject for another time. But what you must see is that John wants to say the story I'm going to tell you is the story about Jesus who was God before anything else existed. We know, it, we know that he's getting at that as in terms of what he says when he continues. All things came into being through him. That's like a summary statement of the story of Genesis, the story of all things coming into being. Who did they come into being through? God. Here John says, they all came into being through the word who was there at the beginning and was with God and was God. Jesus. Now John's going to zoom in further and show us what came into being through Jesus. Look carefully. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. Life there is not the Greek word, Uh, bios, from which we get our word biology. It's the Greek word zoe, which means a certain quality of existence that is categorically different than ordinarily living. Do you know what that kind of existence is like? Have you seen a glimmer of it? Here, John says it is life and light which came into being through Jesus. Do you know the very first thing that God created in the story that is told in Genesis? The very first thing he creates is light. Light. There is darkness, and then God says, let there be light, and then there is light. There is still darkness, but now there's light. What is the darkness for you? Let's put this story aside for a minute. Darkness is chaos and disorder and confusion. Darkness is pain and suffering and grief. This is what darkness is in the poetic world from which these texts come. Darkness is suffering and wickedness and cruelty and evil and hopelessness. What is it for you? Light is order. It's peace. It's illumination so that you can see where to go. It is, it is the It is the curing up of the mystery, and it is now knowledge that is good. It is truth. It is life that is secure. Light is goodness. Here, please listen now, again, for you. Here at the beginning of all things, there is this one Jesus who is the one through whom life and light comes into being. And now watch, because here is something better than an answer, it's a promise. This is in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus comes into the darkness and the darkness still is there but the light goes on shining and no matter how dark the darkness grows, it cannot overcome the light. The same thing cannot and will not be said about darkness. That's for a sermon down the road a bit. But for now, here is a promise about what's happening in the Christmas story, about what's true in our world around us right now, and a promise which is for every one of you who's gathered here this morning, wherever you come from, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. And now so it's crystal clear that John is telling the Christmas story. If we go down to verse 14, we read this phrase, the word became flesh and lived among us. And we saw his glory as the glory of the only son of a father full of grace and truth. This is how John describes the birth of the baby in the manger. The one who is born there in the midst of darkness to a confused family with not enough resources in a time when the the government is dangerous and threatening so that he'll have to grow up and become a refugee with his mom and dad, fleeing from the place where they were born to Egypt until it's safe enough to come back. The way the Bible describes that in those scenes is said here in that the word has become flesh. And what John means to teach us here is that in Jesus, the baby born in the manger, we have the clearest picture of who God is. Listen now, not because Jesus is like God, but because Jesus is God himself with us, born as a baby. Now, some of you may not believe that. You may not want to accept that or think it's just too strange, but if you are going to be with us here as we unfold the Christian answer, not me personally, but that you get it. You know what I'm saying? Then we have we have to understand what Christians believe. Which is that when we see Jesus, we see a true human being who is God with us. And what that means for our search for understanding about the problem of evil and suffering is that if we are going to have a Christian understanding, then we're bound to look first in one place against which we measure all of the answers that we give, and that is to Jesus. If this is what God chose to do, what, in Jesus here, what does it teach us about God's attitude, about God's feelings, about God's hand or part in evil and suffering? If we want an answer for that question that follows the Christian faith, we can look here in the Christmas story to Jesus. I point this out and I dwell on it because the truth about this problem is that for the most part, our ideas do not come from looking at Jesus. They are born in the manger. They come from other places. Here, have you, ever, have you ever heard a cliche offered to you about God once evil and suffering breaks out? Have you? Some of you have. Have they helped or hurt? Sometimes they're awfully insensitive and they hurt, aren't they? I want to dwell here on where our ideas come from. And I want to do this because I'm going to ask you to put even your religious ideas to a test for a few moments here, and especially next week and the week after. That's what we're really going to get into next week. But for now, if we ask where do our ideas come from, I will tell you that I think the the most common place for our ideas to come from is what most people think. That's how we mostly form our opinions about uh, many things, but especially uh, our ideas about God and evil and suffering, I think they're most profoundly formed by what people around us tend to think. We're social animals, aren't we? Yes, I called you an animal, but I meant to say we're social in such a way that it's hard for us to stand too far outside of what most people think, right? And you might say, no, no, that's not true. When I go on Facebook, there's a whole bunch of people I disagree with. Yeah, they're in the other group, right? And you're in this group. That's how it goes for us. We kind of think what everybody thinks. And when it comes to asking, well, what about God and evil? It's very easy to let our thinking just be governed by the cliches that we've heard. For instance, God has a plan. God is in control. Uh, he's managing all the details. When bad things happen, I don't understand it now, but someday I will That's what most people tend to think. Now what happens in real life is that sometimes the events that we personally have to face or someone who's close to us has to face make it very hard for us to go on thinking that those things are true. Have any of you ever gotten to that place? Yes. And so often what happens when you get there and you have to think a little more deeply is that you're pushed to the second place where ideas come from which is what seems right to me. And this is a good step to take. To no longer just say, well, that's what most people think, so that's what I also think, but instead to go deeper and say, wait, what do I really think? What seems right in my conscience given the reality around me? What can I say about God and this problem? Here is where we often resort to what the person we respect thinks Someone who's influential to us personally, or maybe a philosophical school of reasoning, has been compelling to us, or maybe even it's a theological viewpoint that we picked up in the church we went to. So that my grandfather always says, "Well, you get what's coming to you, right?" And I respect him, and so I revert back to thinking, "Well, they must be to blame for the mess they find themselves in." That seems right to me. It doesn't. That's not real, okay? But that's what that's what happens. Or, or I've read a, a, a philosopher. Uh, who, who writes so eloquently about the transcendence of God, about God's being up there above it all, that I guess I say, well, it seems right to me that the only explanation is God's just not involved. He's just watching us from a distance. It's either a philosopher or Bette Midler's song, one or the other. <laughs> Maybe it's the theological framework that the church that I've gone to for a long time has given me. That's what I go back to because it seems right. God's God's sovereign. God's in control. And so, whatever's happening, the answer is that he's guiding all things and I don't know how, but that must be what it is. Listen, these three are more profoundly and and desperately held than the first one, which is what everyone else seems to think, but also these will sometimes become inadequate. And I will tell you that when they do, that's a good thing. And then we get pushed maybe to this third one, which is not what everyone else thinks or what seems right to me, but what I wish were true. This is where when the answers become inadequate and the reality of life is so heavy and please understand me that I know that the reality of your life which is unknown to me may be heavy beyond my imagining. And in moments like that, what happens is we can revert even further back to say, look, forget what other people think or what I learned or read. Look, this is what I need to be true. God has to be in control of every detail. I need that and I'm gonna hold on to it. And I'll tell you what, That strategy is not too different from what looks to be very different but is actually just the other side of the same coin, the strategy which says, well, God is awful and that's what's going on here. He hates me. I once sat with a man who had just lost his second son to a drug overdose in a span of two years and while he was weeping in his bedroom, he said it out loud over and over again, right in my hearing. I know why I'm facing this. God hates me. God hates me, and that's what seemed right to him. Now, I want you to understand, please listen. I am not interested in telling you what to do. I'm not. Partly because I just don't think that's how it works. But I am extremely in earnest about dislodging the many wrong ideas and approach to thinking which keep good, benevolent, lovely people such as yourselves, from embracing the truth of who God really is. One of the saddest things for me is how many good people walk far away from God, not because of God, but because of what has been taught to them about God, which is inadequate. And there's no place where that happens more commonly than in this place, where common wisdom or what someone else told me or I read in a book from some person who I regard with integrity from many, many years ago or what I wish were true, When those things shape our thinking, the chances that we go away are so, so, so utterly high. But here the Christmas story gives us a fourth option for how to think about evil and suffering. And it is completely different than the other three. It is the option that says, I will think about evil and suffering according to what Jesus teaches me. And not just in the words that Jesus speaks, but further back than that. In the perspective that comes from John, which says that if you look at Jesus, you are looking at the one through whom all things were created. Whether you believe that or not, you have to understand this to understand what I would say is a true Christian answer to the question of evil and suffering. That here in this vulnerable baby, born into the darkness, is God himself. You think he's omnipotent, fine. Here is the omnipotent God in the vulnerability of an infant That is what God has decided to do. That's what the Christmas story tells us. If we let what Jesus shows us govern our approach to this question of evil and suffering, then everything shakes out differently. Let me be very concrete here. Think of it. The cliche that says when something awful happens, God is in control, God has a plan, God is the one who is directing all the details. That means one thing when you say it to someone who's just lost the job that they wished they could always have and they haven't yet found a new one. But it means something very different when you say that at the graveside to a parent who lost a child to suicide. Do you see? God is in control. Was God in control of that? What if you ask the question of how those cliches stand up to what you see when you look at Jesus? Think of it, please think of this, and I want you to use your imagination. If you don't know the stories of Jesus, you'll have to trust me on this one. You can read them on your own, but if this one is God, what we see when we look at Jesus is not that God is behind all evil and suffering, but that God is against all evil and suffering. If you take one sentence away from this time, take that. Jesus never comes to someone who's ill and sick with a message that says, well, it's a part of God's plan, accept it. He doesn't. He doesn't come to the sad and broken and lonely and grief-stricken and say, what you need is to learn to accept the sovereign will of my divine Father in heaven. No, he comes with his love to chase away that grief and pain. He reaches out and he touches the person who's broken and ill with his healing power. Now, maybe you'll ask, well, why didn't he do that here? Why didn't he do that now? We can ask that question, not next week, but maybe the week after that. Will you stay with me until then? For now, what you must see is that if Jesus is God with us, well, then we can't say God's behind everything because Jesus is God and he's not behind everything. He walks into a graveyard where there's a man who's mentally ill and tortured And Jesus puts his hand on him and heals him and puts him in his right mind. Why? Because Jesus is against that. Not for it. When we look at Jesus, we see a God whose heart is broken by the very things which break our hearts. We see a God who wants to form people together who are willing to trust him to also be against evil and suffering in the world. Not to be complacent with a, a sense of God's sovereignty that says, well, look, God's gonna do what God does and who are we? That's not what we learn when we look at Jesus. Do you see the difference? And sometimes I say this, I love Jesus. I say it explicitly because I do. And that is sometimes a sentimental fact, but sometimes it's nothing about my feelings at all. Uh, maybe you've been a Christian long enough to know sometimes it doesn't feel like he's good at all. But I love him because here he tells me this is how God faces suffering and evil. By, by, not by staying far away, but by coming right into the darkness and not even making the darkness go away, but, but, but coming right up against it so he himself is there with it as light, which is not overcome by the darkness. And this is a truth which will raise more questions. I know it. If you're listening to me now, you've got more questions. Good. I genuinely hope you'll come back next week and the week after where, where we really start to unfold them. But for now, what I want you to see is the promise of Christmas in the face uh, of the reality of suffering and evil is that there is a light which has come into the darkness and that means something. It means something here when we talk together like this. It means something in the hospital room where there's a girl who has questions about God. After the social worker got everyone out of that room, I went over and I sat down right beside Kirsten there in her bed. And her brilliant eyes were as sad as I've ever seen eyes in my entire life. And for a long time, she just looked at me and she didn't say anything. And then she asked her question Christian, does God know what I feel like? And I thought of Christmas. And I thought of a story which says that the creator of all the worlds set aside his omnipotence so that he would live a real human life. So that he would be born into the darkness of not having enough. And he would grow up in a family that didn't understand him. That he would walk the road and face all kinds of evil and suffering, mental illness, anguish, demonic possession, spiritual maladies of every single kind. And he would walk into that world so that the darkness of that world went right into him. And he would walk all the way to the cross where the darkness would become his darkness. And this is the story that the Christian gospel is built upon. That the Lord of all, the host of heaven, emptied himself and became a servant and walked the road of sinners and died on the cross. And there, as Kirsten asked me if God knew what she felt like, I thought of that phrase that Jesus God with us uttered as he hung on the cross right before dying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thought, if I believe the Christmas story, it means that God even knows the experience of dying all alone apart from God. And so with confidence, I could say to Kirsten what I said, yes, he knows exactly what you feel like. And that also is something I can say to every single one of you. Even if what you feel like is in your heart there can't possibly be a God, he knows. Not only because he, he, he's omniscient in some sort of abstract way because he himself walked the road that had on it every single challenge that we ourselves will ever face and he faced it. And here's the promise and I'll unfold this especially on Christmas Eve the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it. It doesn't. And what we need, all of us, is to dwell in that promise now and have our minds and our hearts open to what we would learn if we would look at Jesus, if we would really look. And that's what we're gonna do in these weeks ahead. For now, listen, let that darkness, whatever it is, come one more time into your mind, please. God knows it. God is the light in the darkness. And that darkness may persist, but it will never, ever overcome the light. Ever. Let's pray. God, what we need is we need you. We don't need answers, we don't need more ideas, but we need you. And what we celebrate at Christmas time is that you are Emmanuel, God with us. That when Jesus came, the long-awaited hope of your people that a light would come for the darkness has in fact come. And what we need now in our world, which is dark, in our own worlds, which are dark, is the light that comes from Jesus. Would you shine that light upon us in our hearts? Emmanuel, we ask for you to come now in Jesus' name. Amen.